Well, good morning um, and happy Father's Day again. Um, you know, I know it's been said, but I'm so, so glad that you guys are here, you mighty men of God. Because even though this is one of those holidays where they tell you it's all about relaxing and it's all about, you know, go play a round of golf. You men, you're here this morning because for you, Jesus comes first. In fact, you know, that's, that's the deal for you. You wanted to start your day by celebrating your father. Or you heard that we had free bacon. Look, I'm not judging. If pop culture has taught us nothing else, it's that the promise of crispy pig flesh is like a siren song to all men. In fact, that was the actual song that Odysseus was hearing when he was, over and over again when he was tied to the mast of his ship. The sirens were singing, hot, fresh, and free, right over here, the bacon doth be. It's that, that's the thing. That is what would draw the boats in to crash on the rocks there, was the promise of free bacon. Look, like I, like I said just a minute ago, like I prayed just a minute ago, I don't think anyone's here by mistake. So regardless of whether it was the sacrificial ham or the sacrificial lamb that brought you this morning, I am so glad you're here. And I am convinced that you're in the right place. You're exactly where God wants you. And so as we approach the middle of our year in the life of Jesus, we find ourselves in the middle of this series called Nine Conversations. And in this series, we're looking at what we can learn about Jesus, who he is and what his character is like from the interactions that he has with various people in various circumstances. And as OJ said, appropriately enough, this morning, the interaction we're looking at has a dad in it. And in keeping with the theme from last week, there's a demon in it too. So you'd almost think we planned it that way. Now, we're not really in the habit of giving our sermons like kitschy titles around here, but a couple of weeks ago when we were talking through today's service and what it would look like uh, in, our, in our Monday morning staff meeting, Carrie Freeman, after hearing what the sermon was going to be about, she's like, if you don't call this dads and demons, you don't have any courage at all. And so, so I'm, taking, I'm taking up that mantle. And I'm going to break with tradition. I am titling today's message, Dads and Demons, because who doesn't love a good alliteration? So if you're new or visiting, or if you weren't here for, for another reason last week, you really should uh, go back and listen to Kaylee's sermon, Kaylee Newkirk, uh, her sermon about Jesus and the demon legion. And you can find that through our resources page or on our website at summitconnect.org or, or wherever you get podcasts by searching for Summit Church Lake Mary. And Kaylee just did this masterful job exploring the topic of demons and demon possession. So I don't want to go through all that again this morning, but you really should take a moment to listen to that sermon. There's great, great stuff in there. And so... So here's what I'm going to say about demons to, uh, this morning. They are active today. And though they may manifest themselves in different ways, that doesn't mean that they're not here. See, us, the fact that we don't see the sort of spectacular displays that we find in the Gospels, it doesn't mean that they're not real. It's, it's actually proof of what C.S. Lewis writes in The God in the Dock. If, if devils exist, their first aim is to give us an anesthetic, to put us off our guard. Only if that fails do we become aware of them. It's pretty clear as Christ followers that we are going to experience spiritual attack. The Apostle Peter warns us of this. He writes, Be alert and of sober mind. Remain on guard for your enemy. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But listen, as crafty and as sinister as our enemy is, and as much as we do need to remain on guard against spiritual attack, we shouldn't live in fear of demons or Satan himself because they've already lost. They're defeated. And furthermore, lest you should be concerned about the potential that you could become possessed, both the scriptures and the scholars agree that believers are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And once Jesus has made his home in us, we cannot be possessed. So having laid some background on on that, let's take a look at the text. You can find this interaction in your Bible in Mark, 
starting uh, Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14. It's also on the back of your bulletins, or you can listen along uh, as I read. Mark 9, 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought my son to you who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father explained, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the demon. You deaf and mute spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive him out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. So this encounter is found in all three of the synoptic gospels, which is a term that's used to signify that the gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke, despite having their own unique perspectives, are, are rather alike in their uniqueness. It's generally accepted that the authors of Matthew and Luke each made use of Mark as they wrote their accounts of Jesus' time on earth. In fact, over 95% of what you find in Mark is found in either Matthew or Luke or both. That means that there are less than 30 unique verses of all, in all of Mark. We get eight of them in this story. So Mark, despite being the shortest of the four Gospels, has by far the more substantial retelling of this story, and there's got to be a reason for that. And we're going to get to why in just a minute. But first, let's set the scene a little bit. So just prior to this, Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John, his closest disciples, up on a mountain where he's transfigured right before his eyes. That means his physical appearance was drastically changed. We're told that he was filled with brightness, that his clothes became dazzling white, and that Elijah and Moses appeared and had a conversation with him. And a voice from heaven you know, the one that sounds like James Earl Jones boomed, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. And then just like that, it's over, and Jesus and these three disciples, they, they make their journey back to the world below to, comfort, to confront the misery and the disease and the fallenness of humanity, but also its desperate hopes. And that's where we enter the story. These four are approaching the rest of the disciples who are surrounded by this crowd, and they're arguing with the teachers of the law. Upon seeing Jesus, the crowd was overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. Now look, none of these things, not, not the presence of the teachers of the law or, or the arguing, nor the crowd's amazement at, at, at Jesus are out of context in Mark's gospel. In fact, that's kind of the standard backdrop to most of Jesus' activity in Mark. 
And despite Jesus' attempts to elude them, the crowds do often gather around him. Many times it's to hear him teach or to bring him people in need of healing. And they're repeatedly said to be amazed by him. And whether it's Pharisees or scribes or teachers of the law, religious officials are regularly found observing and arguing with Jesus as they try to discredit him. There's nothing really out of the ordinary here. And when they reach the crowd, Jesus just asks, what's, what's going on? And, and this man, he comes out of the crowd and explains that the commotion surrounds his son, who, based on the father's description of his affliction, sounds for all the world like he has epilepsy. He's seized. He's thrown to the ground. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. In fact, it's not uncommon to see this interaction referred to as the healing of an epileptic boy. But such descriptions though more palatable to our modern way of thinking, make assumptions about both the people and Jesus that need not be made. It's so easy to look 2,000 years in the past and assume that they just didn't understand what they were seeing or, or assume that they attributed all such illness to demonic possession. But that's not the case. Rather, writings from the time show that among those who were deemed mad, there were those whose illness was determined to be from natural causes and those whose illness was attributed to supernatural or demonic activity. What's more, to assume that this is just epilepsy is to say that rather than explaining what was actually going on, Jesus allows this crowd to continue to believe that this was demonic possession when it wasn't, and Jesus would have known that. Instead, what seems to be going on is that this boy was possessed by a demon, and that the attacks that he suffered seemed a lot like epilepsy. Look, our impulse to sanitize this passage, it seems right in line with what Lewis was saying about becoming anesthetized to the presence of demons. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we should go around shouting, not today, Satan, at every little misfortune we experience. But if we assume that it's never Satan, if it's never something supernaturally spiritual that's attacking us, we're crippling ourselves in our fight against our enemy. So at this point, all we know is that for some reason, the disciples can't cast this demon out. Despite the fact that in Mark 6, verse 7, we're told that Jesus gave them authority over unclean spirits. And that in verse 13, they actually did cast out many demons. Which means that they should be able to do this. Because here's the thing. Once this authority was, giving, was given to them, to deal with them was to deal with Jesus. And to deal with Jesus was to deal with God himself. They should have been able to do this. But they couldn't, and like sharks smelling blood in the water, the teachers of the law, they seize on the disciples' failure as an opportunity, not to actually attempt to help the boy and his father, even though Jewish religious leaders performed exorcisms as well, but instead as an opportunity to bolster their attack on Jesus' credibility. The fact that this boy has a seizure as soon as he's brought to Jesus, it furthers the argument that this is demon possession because it's just like the other interactions that Jesus has with demons. When they come near to Jesus, they are aware of who he is. They know the power that he has and they know that their end is near. In verse 21, as the boy rises in front of him, Jesus asks the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answers, it has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Now, this isn't Jesus, MD, doing a thorough patient history before beginning treatment. Jesus knows what's going on here. And he asked this question for the same reason that he so frequently asked questions. He's inviting the father into relationship. He's, he's inviting the father to open up to him. He's doing it for a purpose. 
And we learn two things from the father's response. On a practical level, we find out that his son has suffered his entire life. And that this demon has often sought to kill the boy, either by drowning or by burning him. We're not told how old the boy is, but we do know that there's been no relief and no expectation that there would be. On an emotional level, though, we see that the, fa the father's words, they reveal to us that watching his son suffer for his entire life has broken him down. And, and who wouldn't be broken down by that? My daughter, Kate, she's almost seven now. When she was two and a half, we discovered that she had uh, this medical condition called non-classical congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which is really big and scary sounding, but it's not life-threatening. It does require ongoing monitoring by a pediatric, pediatric endocrinologist, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but what it really means is blood tests and bone scans and ultrasounds and MRI and being hooked up to an IV for hours at a time. And those things are scary when you're too young to understand why. She's starting to get it now, and she's so strong. But, but, but for a long time, all she knew was that it hurt and that she wanted it to stop. And, and as her parents, my wife and I, it, it meant that most of the time what we had to do was try to hold her hand and keep her calm while the nurses fought to get a blood sample from her. And other times it meant that we were the ones that actually had to do the holding down while they tried to get the needle in her arm. As much as you want to take it away or make it stop or take it on yourself, you can't. We could only endure it with her. And my wife, Kara, she told me after the first time that she had to hold Kate down for blood work that um, she cried harder than Kate did while they were trying to do that. And she was trying not to let Kate see her cry. She said she was praying in those few moments and, and asking God if there was a way that she could take away Kate's pain, that she could take her place even. And in that moment, she said she came to understand on a deeper level what it was that Jesus had done for us by taking our place. Look, God doesn't enjoy watching us suffer any more than any of us want to watch our own children suffer. But sometimes, sometimes that pain has to be endured because the alternative would actually be worse in the long run. But even when it's necessary, it doesn't make it any easier. It still wears you down. What's wearing you down this morning? Maybe it's work or, or family or loss. Maybe your dad's no longer around. Maybe your son doesn't speak to you. Or maybe you're here and you thought that you would be a father by now and it just hasn't happened. You can see how worn down this father is in the way that he asked Jesus to heal his son. He says, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. He doesn't question whether or not Jesus is willing. He wonders if he is able. He's likely been drawn by Jesus' reputation as a miracle worker. And he brings his son tentatively hopeful, but far from certain. He's here, but he's always expecting the next disappointment. If we look in verse 23, it shows Jesus' response. He says, if you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Jesus' words here are encouragement and they're pointing the father in the direction he must go. Jesus is leading him towards a confession of faith and the father's response is instant, it's fervent, but most importantly, it's honest. He declares that he does indeed believe and he simultaneously identifies himself as part of that unbelieving generation that Jesus was talking about. But this is exactly the response Jesus was looking for, and it's exactly what sets Mark apart from Matthew and Luke. See, for Matthew and Luke, the importance of this, of this interaction is on what Jesus does. 
But for Mark, what Jesus does here is secondary to who Jesus is. As James Edwards writes in his commentary on Mark, one can be amazed by a miracle, but one can only trust and believe a person. So while the demon and the miracle are undoubtedly important, the real focus of this encounter is faith. Which isn't surprising in Mark because faith is one of the defining things that you'll find if you read through the book. It's, it's incredibly important to all the things that Jesus does. In chapter 4, when Jesus calms the wind and the waves, faith is the thing that he questions in the disciples. In chapter 5, faith is the thing that heals the woman with the issue of blood and the thing that he tells Jairus to have when he receives word that his, that his daughter has died. In chapter 6, Jesus is amazed at the lack of faith in his hometown and as a result of this lacking faith, only does a few miracles there. In chapter 7, the demon-possessed daughter of the Syrophoenician woman is healed because of the woman's faith that even a crumb from Jesus would be enough to do the job. George Michael was right, you gotta have faith. Now by contrast, without faith there will be no miracles. Jesus makes this, make, makes this clear in chapter eight when the Pharisees confront him in Dalmanutha. They ask him to prove who he is by doing a miracle for them and Jesus refuses, saying there will be no miracle for this generation. See, miracles are not an on-demand proof of Jesus' deity to those who don't believe. This is actually something I can attest to from my own life. I was in middle school when we started attending church on a regular basis, and it was the type of church where there were faith healings and deliverances and miraculous things uh, that were frequently talked about and prayed for. Now, I didn't become a Christian until I was 15, about three or four years later, and so in the time being, as I hung out on the fringes of faith, there were a number of times when I would ask God to prove himself to me. I would ask him to do something to show me that he was real, and that if he would do that, I would believe. One of those moments accompanied the death of a pet. See, I had this mouse. It's a really cute little guy. He looked like the quintessential little lab mouse. He was all white. He had the pink eyes and that super cute tail. And I came home from school one day to find little Algernon dead in the bottom of his cage. And as I recovered from my initial shock and, and my grief-addled brain started to turn, it occurred to me that I knew he was alive that morning and, and that I didn't really know how long he would have been dead. Maybe it was just a little while. Look, I, I didn't know the protocol in these situations, but maybe God could do something. Maybe God could resurrect my mouse. I mean, that seems like the kind of thing that God would do to prove his, that he exists a 12-year-old boy. Also, I had yet to read Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, so I had no idea about the dangers inherent in pet resurrection. <laughs> so, so in my time at church, though I didn't believe, I had observed tons and tons of praying, including prayers for healing, and so, and so I did what I thought you were supposed to do. I, I laid hands on a little bugger, because that's how you do healing prayer. And so I prayed, God, if you're real, bring my mouse back to life. And you know what? Little Algernon is still alive today. No, actually, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that, that, would be, that would be crazy. And also, I would have told that story a million times by now, I think. Um, no, here's the deal. I, I stood there for like 15 minutes next to my dresser with my hand in the cage on Algernon's you know, little lifeless body, and I begged God to prove that he was real to me by resurrecting my mouse. And, and, and he never did. And eventually, I, I gave up. I went... I went out and I got a plastic, a plastic bag, grabbed a Publix bag like you do for literally everything. And I wrapped Algernon up in his little polyurethane uh, 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 coffin and I took him out and gave him a fitting burial in our trash can outside. 
I learned a very important lesson from this event. Public bags do not contain the stench of a decaying rodent. That was a real gift a few days later when I would take the trash out. Now look, the, the, thing, the thing that I, that I might have learned that I didn't realize I was learning was this. God uh, is, is gracious in the prayers that he doesn't answer. Because likely if that mouse had come back to life, I probably actually would have like freaked out. It would have, it would have been a traumatic experience for me. And, and the more and more that I've thought about it, it actually seems probable that after the initial shock had worn off, it wouldn't have made any difference in terms of my faith. Now, that might sound strange, but here's the thing. The Pharisees, they had this front row ticket to so many miracles that Jesus did. And the thing that we know about the Pharisees is that despite seeing all of those miracles, it actually just hardened them in their opposition to him. Look, the reason that without faith there can't be a miracle isn't because Jesus can't. He's certainly capable. But because even if he did, it may not matter. Verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. As it turns out, exercising the demon wasn't actually hard. Jesus only had to say the word and the demon was gone. But first, the father had to believe that Jesus could. Now, Jesus didn't require that dad to manifest a particular quantity of faith, but rather a quality of faith. It had to be honest faith. Anytime we're talking about faith and we start putting a quantity to it, we're missing the point. See, true faith isn't an exercise in spiritual machismo. We don't, we, don't, we don't prove our faith by starting about with our chest puffed out and pretending that we're stronger or have more faith than we actually do. True faith, one commentator wrote, is, is always aware of how small and inadequate it is. And that's why the faith of a mustard seed, something that's so small, can move mountains. Because true faith doesn't take any confidence in itself. In fact, true faith realizes that without Jesus, there is nothing to have confidence in. Eugene Boring, who has the best name of any professor ever, he explains it this way. Yeah, if I was a professor, if I, if I was a student, I had Eugene Boring, I would just call him Dr. Boring all the time. It, 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 it's truly amazing. Um, a little bit of jealousy there. Uh, I want that name. Uh, here's the thing. Um, he explains it this way. It's not faith that accomplishes anything but God. Yet this power is realized. It's made real. It's experienced as reality to and for the one who trusts in God's power. We don't have to do it on our own. This dad didn't have to do it on our own. He didn't have to make the miracle happen. He just had to honestly believe that it could, that Jesus could. Now, there's this other thing that Jesus says in there. He says everything is possible for the one who believes. But what, but what does that mean? If we read it in isolation, it could seem like it's revealing you know, the secret cheat code that unlocks God's blessing. You know, faith equals getting God to do anything you want. And that sounds pretty awesome on the surface, but before we go ahead and like sloganize that and, and, and attempt to live our lives by that, I think we need to consider what that formula would actually say about the, the dynamics of our relationship with God. See, a formula like that, it would reduce God to a genie in the bottle. 
he would be under, uh, under our power and compelled to do our bidding. And as much as that may seem attractive, that kind of power, that, uh, as much as that kind of power may seem attractive, it turns out that Uncle Ben, that's Spider-Man's uncle and not the rice guy, was, was right. With great power comes great responsibility. All power comes at a cost. And the cost of this formula is the responsibility to get it right every time. See, our prayers would become tests of our spiritual proficiency because if our faith is the accomplishing agent, we bear the responsibility for every outcome, including those who don't get better. Holding that power would mean taking the health and the lives of the people we pray for on our shoulder and accepting culpability for the outcome. Feel the weight of that for a second. It's more than we can possibly bear. It's certainly more than God ever intended for us to bear. But even though he never intended for us to bear it, how often do we pick it up anyway? A number of years ago, I met this like, wonderful, kind, loving woman, this prototypical grandma type. And she was full of hugs and warmth, and she just loved Jesus so much. She talked often about what Jesus had shown her that day, what she had learned from studying his word and from spending time in prayer with him. This woman, when she was younger, had suffered a pretty, pretty serious ankle injury. And even after having surgery to correct it, she lived in near constant pain. She believed that God could heal her. But she believed, after praying and praying and praying for him to do it, that her faith was the reason he hadn't. When she grappled with that, she decided to carry that burden, that she couldn't be healed because she just didn't have enough faith. Look, Jesus is the miracle worker, not us. If you think that something that you've been praying for hasn't happened because you're not doing it right or because you don't have enough faith for it to happen, that's not the case. Verse 28. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come, come out only by prayer. So like he did after other big moments, Jesus takes the disciples aside to talk with them privately about what had happened. And it's no surprise that their question is, why didn't it work when we tried? They had done it before, after all, and, and, and so why didn't it work? And Jesus' response here, it kind of seems like a non sequitur. Everything so far has been all about faith. So now why is Jesus changing directions and talking about prayer? It's because faith and prayer are really two sides of the same coin. See, faith, or prayer, is faith directed at the one who can make it effective. And that's why it's what they needed. They had clearly been given the power, but forgot whose power it was. And that's the problem with success. Sometimes it leads to faith in the wrong place. At the beginning of the story, the dad and the disciples, they have this one really important thing in common. See, the dad was hesitant to put his faith in Jesus because he didn't believe that anyone could do anything to help his son. The disciples, they didn't put their faith in Jesus either, but it was because they believed that they could do it on their own. One puts his faith in no one, and the others put their faith in the wrong ones. Look, the moral of the story here isn't, don't, is for sure don't put your faith in the wrong one, but also don't put your faith in no one. Put your faith in the one who can fully and always be trusted. 
Put your faith in Jesus. And look, I know that that sounds simultaneously both too simple to work and so very hard. Maybe this morning you want to believe that that's true, that all you have to do is put your faith in Jesus, but you're not sure that you can. You're worn down, yeah, by your circumstances, but also by the lies of the enemy, telling you that things are so hopeless that no one can help, or that if you were stronger, you'd be able to help yourself, or that God's disappointed in you, or he's punishing you. Look, none of those things are true. And the longer you give them credence, the more they'll consume you. Jesus is the one in whom all hope and power reside, and crying out to him, even in the poverty of your faith, is all the faith that's required. As much as I wish that that would guarantee the outcome you got would be the outcome that you wanted, I can't. But maybe that's what we're afraid of. Maybe our fear is that we'll ask and God won't move, and so it's easier just to not ask than to risk being disappointed. But true faith is risky. It risks the possibility that God might not respond as we think he ought. But here's the thing. True faith is in the, not in the act, it's in the person. Neither faith nor prayer is actually about producing outcomes. They're about cultivating relationship, no matter the outcome. Prayer is always effective, just not always in the area we're looking to affect because prayer is faith in the one and not the wonder. Faith is required, but it's God who does the work, not us. So quit trying to do God's job better for him. Quit trying to control the outcomes. Quit trying to tell God which path leads to life and healing. Your path may be through years of recovery, or it may be through financial struggle rather than around it. It may be through hard conversations. It may be through gut-wrenching prayers that don't change things, but actually end up changing you. So the question that we're left with this morning is are you willing to put your faith in the one regardless of whether or not you get the wonder? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for meeting us where we are. Thank you for being the one in whom all hope and power reside. Thank you for being the one who asks us to have faith but not to bury the burden, to, bury, to, to carry the burden of what that faith produces. Thank you for hearing our prayers, even when they're only tentatively hopeful and far from certain. God, I pray this morning you would speak truth into the lives of the weary, that you would run down and drown out the lies of the enemy. Remind us, God, that our enemy has been defeated, that you have overcome him, have, have overcome him and have set us free. Help us to lay down our need to control the outcomes, God. Grant us the strength to put our faith in you so that regardless of what happens, even when we don't understand, we have the courage to walk the path you've laid before us. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus, in whom we have put our hope. Amen.